On this episode of China Unscripted, how George Soros inadvertently helped China's Ministry of State Security, and what techniques Chinese spies use to co-opt foreigners without them realizing it. Welcome to China Unscripted. I'm Chris Chappell. I'm Shelley Zhang. And I'm Matt Ganeshta. And joining us today is Alex Josky. He has a new book out called Spies and Lies, How China's Greatest Covert Operations Fooled the World. Alex, thanks for joining us again. Thanks for having me. It's good to see you all. Yeah. The, the last time we spoke, we were in Australia, right? In 2018. And I was in a toga, right? Uh, that's going to take some explaining. No, we'll just put the photo up unexplained. Okay. Go, do, go ahead. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, you have, you have this new book out. And one of the things that I thought was, was most interesting about it is you hear a lot about the United Front Work Department. You hear a lot about that if you're somebody who's really interested in China. <laughs> uh, I don't think anyone on TikTok knows about it. But you think of the United Front Work Department as the one doing these sort of uh, international influence operations. The United Front is actually a branch of the Communist Party itself. Uh, but in your book, you know, you say that it's actually a lot of this work is being done by the Ministry of State Security, kind of China's spy agency to simplify it, which I thought had the reputation of being kind of not so competent. Yeah, that's right. I think people think of the Ministry of State Security, the MSS, as a kind of thuggish counterintelligence agency that's going around roughing up dissidents and, and, and Falun Gong practitioners. Uh, but the reality is that it, it has really professional parts of it, but it's it's an a organization with easily well over 100,000 employees. You've got people work, working in backwater provinces. But then I really focus in this book on a particular bureau of the MSS's headquarters, the 12th Bureau or the Social Investigation Bureau that plugs into United Front Work, that takes the lead on elite influence operations, and I think is really a hidden force behind a lot of China's influence and power overseas. So, Well, so when you say like, this bureau of the uh, MSS is like sort of taking the lead with the United Front Work Department. Like, what what does that mean? Like, where do these two organizations rank in comparison to each other? Why you need two groups doing the same thing? Like, what what's going on? Yeah, I think there are still a lot of things that we don't understand about how this how this works. And you know, I hope people write many more books trying to unravel what's going on here. But kind of the basic the way that I look at it basically is that the United Front Work Department has some involvement in covert and clandestine operations, but itself is not a spy agency. You know, it doesn't, doesn't have law enforcement powers. It doesn't seem to have the same kind of training and culture that intelligence agencies have. It doesn't seem to have very much foreign language expertise, but that's all stuff that the MSS specializes in. So the way I see the relationship between the two is that the United Front Work Department is busy building up networks all around the world within China in ethnic Chinese communities, in religious communities, in ethnic minority communities, and so on. And then you get the United Front Work Department kind of sitting atop of that, um, you know, plugging itself into these existing CCP-aligned networks and using that as a recruiting ground and as an operating ground for more sophisticated covert and clandestine activities. You mean the MSS is sitting on top or the United Front? Uh, the MSS, I spoke. Um, 
Well, I mean, I know it's more than just in influencing uh, overseas Chinese communities. Like, I think a lot of people, if they've heard of the MSS, might have heard about it from the recent uh, Twitter whistleblower who said Twitter basically hired an agent of the MSS and didn't really seem to care. I think this, you know, just really speaks to the the extent of MSS operations. They're, they're not just working within Chinese communities, as the book shows you know, they're really working hard against elites. They're seeking to understand uh, and influence political systems overseas, you know, using China's heft as an economic power to build connections. And, and this case with Twitter is just one example of that. Well, if there are any MSS agents secretly working in YouTube, hello. <laughs> yeah, well, well, speaking of uh, the MSS influencing elites. Well, actually, well, before we get into that, I was just going to ask, what do you think most people get wrong about the MSS? I think, you know, it's people tend to think that spying is just something that matters to governments and it doesn't really have strategic consequences. You know, it's seen as this thing that governments have to engage in, but it's a kind of war of attrition where you have, you know, the CIA spying on the KGB, the KGB spying back on the CIA, and they're kind of balancing each other in a way. But what I really try to show is that it's so much more than that, that it's not, not just about stealing government secrets or stealing advanced technology. What the MSS seems to have really emphasized uh, is elite influence operations. And, and this is something that has, has, I think, changed and affected the way that people understand China and affected international policy on China. So it's something that has strategic consequences. So one of the things I, I like about your book is that you you give very specific examples of this uh, MSS elite capture. And one of the uh, people that the MSS seems to have built a relationship with is George Soros. Can you talk a bit about that? Yeah, it was a really interesting case. And it was really the starting point for my book as well, because Soros himself talked about his run-in with the MSS quite publicly in, in, in several different contexts, you know, in his memoir, uh, in a speech at, at Davos. Uh, so he, he'd been burnt by the MSS and had sort of, you know, lived to tell the tale, essentially. And what happened was that in the 80s, this period, I think, of genuine liberalization and reform inside China, Soros saw this as an opportunity to push his political philanthropy inside China, promote liberal values. So he set up a foundation there, he got a lot of high-level government backing, but I think what he didn't realize is that reformists were really on the out at the time, and very quickly the MSS basically knocked on on the door of his foundation and said, "We're going to take over this operation." Uh, so they actually used a front group for the MSS to become the partner organization of Soros's foundation in China in 1988, and then were appropriating funds for their own purposes funding their own international exchanges, bringing visitors over. All the actual liberal intellectuals who'd been funded by the group were scared off. And then in the lead up to the Tiananmen massacre, Soros pulled the plug on the whole operation because working with the MSS is not a way to promote liberal values within China. You know, this was more of a kind of defensive operation, I think, at the time. But it, it really shows the kind of boldness of the MSS. You had an undercover vice minister of the Ministry of State Security, you know, one of the second in commands of the agency, go directly to Soros and talk to him and convince him to 
cede control of his organization to the MSS. Did Soros know it was the MSS? At the time, he was actually aware of it, but his explanation is that he thought that his foundation was under pressure from the Ministry of Public Security, so another domestically focused intelligence agency in China. And he thought that with all the factional wrangling within the Chinese Communist Party, partnering with the MSS was his only way to keep this foundation going, that they could kind of hold off the MPS uh, through partnering with his foundation. But clearly it's, you know, it's a, it's a double-edged sword. Right. It's like choosing to side with the CIA instead of the FBI if both organizations were mainly focused on persecuting people. Yeah, that's right. I don't think there's, there's really any safe way to cooperate as an individual and not a government with Chinese intelligence agencies. Well, I mean, I know George Soros has recently been very critical of Xi Jinping writing a couple op-eds, I forget in which... Uh, and and that speech at Davos. Too. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if that early experience in China really kind of burned him. On a... I wish more people had learned from his experiences and been like, you know what, maybe this is an authoritarian regime that we shouldn't get close with. Yeah, and I think I think one of the remarkable things with Soros is that uh, after the Tiananmen massacre, he actually saw that as uh, spelling the end of the Chinese Communist Party. He thought that even though these protests had been crushed, the party was doomed, that, that liberalism was, 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 was rising within China. And I think this really defines the way a lot of the West viewed these activities and, and kind of explains why people were able to look past all of that, look past you know, Soros's bad experiences in the 80s and keep engaging with China with that hope of, of, a, of a more open country. Yeah, it's one thing that's interesting that you talk about in your book, how the MSS was able to kind of co-opt that wish or belief from a lot of um, these elites in liberal democracies that China was going to become more liberal. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I think it's it's a bit of a misconception about influence operations that they're just there to change people's minds or shift perceptions, change policymaking. Whereas I see the main effect of these MSS uh, and just CCP influence operations generally as being holding people back, you know, keeping them, uh, you know, enthralled by these naive beliefs about where China was going. Uh, so in the case of the MSS, you could see them kind of looking at the way that foreigners understood China, looking at their hopes and dreams for China, that China would become a liberal d democratic country, that it would become westernized, that it would slot itself into the existing international order um, and just playing this back. So reflecting this, amplifying it, rather than seeking to you know, find those people who are really concerned about the Chinese Communist Party and change their mind. It's just about empowering those who already saying the things that the Chinese Communist Party wants them to say, giving them access to China, giving them more status, um, reinforcing those views. So really, they're all about empowerment. <laughs> That's right. It's, it's a progressive agenda. <laughs> it's, it's kind of about um, also reinforcing like people believing that they're right, right? Like if these people already had these views and then they're being told, oh, yes, yes, this is what we're going to do, then they feel more assured that 
yeah, yeah I'm, Shell, I'm, you're absolutely right. I totally agree. Yeah, yeah. I'm <laughs> I'm an expert on China. Like I know what they're going to do. They're going to liberalize. That's true, and also really taking advantage of the hope. Mm. Yeah, it makes it so hard to push back against because you're you know you can't point to someone specifically having their mind changed by the MSS, but these people have nonetheless been influenced by them. They've been encouraged by the MSS. They feel like they've been given privileged access and insights into the direction of the Chinese Communist Party, which in some cases might contradict what the party says publicly. But, you know, when you've had a meeting with Li Keqiang, with, with Jiang Zemin, and he's told you China's about to become a democracy or is moving towards liberalism, to a lot of people that counts for so much more than what they read in the press. Yeah, of course they're going to have to say the party propaganda out loud, but you know, behind closed doors, this is that's the real thing. You you heard it personally, from, right? Yeah, from Jiang Zemin, great guy. Yeah, uh, you talk about this access cult idea. Um, is that what you mean that like people are access cult? Cult. Yeah, essentially. So you know what what I saw happening was that uh, the MSS and also Chinese military intelligence agencies were brokering access between a lot of foreigners and Chinese Communist Party officials. You know, if you go to Beijing, you don't have Xi Jinping's number. You need a contact who can set up that meeting, who can vouch for you, who can use their political capital to, to convince party leaders that you're worth meeting, that, that you're essentially a, a worthwhile target for influence and, um, and engagement. And so, for example, um, you can, you can find, you know, one of the really helpful things about these MSS operations is that they were covert rather than clandestine. So what that means is that you had MSS officers going undercover as think tank scholars, but really living that identity as a think tank scholar and just behaving as publicly as a think tank scholar normally might. And that means there's a lot of public records about some of the things that they were involved in. So I identified one guy as an MSS officer and then I saw that he was talked about in the memoirs of this American activist who'd gone to Beijing and wanted to help China and Taiwan resolve their differences independently. Um, you know, as an individual, he wanted to kind of sit between this international dispute. And so he went to Beijing. These MSS officers were organizing all of his meetings and then they offered him a deal. They said, uh, we, will, we will get you a meeting personally with Jiang Zemin himself and you can pass on your advice and your letter about how to resolve tensions with Taiwan to Jiang Zemin in person if you take our side on Taiwan. So I think he didn't take that, that deal, but it, it makes it so clear that this is something the MSS really sees as a tool of influence, the, the ability to offer access to the inner sanctum of the Chinese Communist Party. You know, that really makes me think of Elon Musk and how he had the recent thing about Oh, Taiwan should become a special administrative region of China. It's like who, who in China was giving him? Who is he talking to in China? Who's giving him access? Like, I wonder if this is a case where maybe that idea was planted for him. I don't know, but I mean, he could also just be not kind of naive on foreign policy all by himself. That's true. That's <laughs> true. But I mean, there's at least the system there. And what I find interesting is this is so different from, I think, what a lot of people think of as spycraft. 
You know, it's not like stealing documents or playing Baccarat and drinking martinis. Yes, that's what spies do. They play Baccarat. Yeah. Which means there are lots of spies in China because they all go play Baccarat in Macau. Yes, that's, (laughs) there you go. Wow, Shelly, you really understand China. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, Shelly, your ideas are so great. I'm I'm not going to like this, (laughs) am I? It's going to keep going. (laughs) It's a way to undermine praising you. (laughs) Well, so what one of the thing one of the people that you talk about in your book is you almost have like a whole chapter dedicated to the former Australian Prime Minister Bob Hawke. Uh, can you talk a bit about how he ended up kind of doing the MSS's work without being an agent or anything? Yeah, he's he's a really great case study in how these elite influence operations work and, and also how far back they go. So this was the same Australian Prime Minister who thought of himself as best friends with Zhao Ziyang and Hu Yaobang, these two sort of liberal reformist leaders of the Chinese Communist Party in the 80s, and then was shocked by the Tiananmen Massacre in 89, uh, cried in a televised speech when he talked about the massacre uh, shortly afterwards, and then left politics and then was trying to set himself up as a businessman in the 1990s, sort of a typical career pathway for for retired politicians. And um, all of a sudden, he gets an offer from the Chinese government inviting him back to visit. And he was really surprised by this. He thought he'd burnt his relationship with the Chinese government uh, by speaking out about the Tiananmen Massacre and welcoming tens of thousands of Chinese students uh, to settle in Australia uh, in its aftermath. Um, But he took up this offer. He didn't really know what, what they had planned for him. And he went to Beijing. He managed to set up a company in China, um, which, which basically sort of marketed access to Chinese elites to foreign companies. So a foreign company would go to Beijing. They wanted to get meetings with you know the top economic official, and they would go to his consulting company to be able to set up that meeting. But what he never said publicly uh, was that the group that invited him to China was this center for this this. China Institute for Strategy and Management. And this China Institute for Strategy and Management included as its vice president uh, the same undercover MSS vice minister who was running the Soros case. It included the chairman of a front company for the MSS 12th Bureau, which specializes in elite influence operations. And its secretary general was the son of that guy uh, who himself was a member of an MSS 12th Bureau organization and it's the son, the secretary general of this institute that invited Hawke over, uh, that actually set up a joint venture, this consulting company with Bob Hawke. So Bob Hawke's consulting company of offering access to foreign companies um, was actually set up with this MSS asset, essentially. And through none of this relationship would he have, I don't think he would actually have been pitched by the MSS. They wouldn't have gone up to him and been like, here, I'll give you a million dollars to work for the MSS. They don't need to do that when they're running these activities, building influence over you, having a relationship with you through business. So it's a really nice way to engage with and influence uh, foreign elites. So what were some of the things that Bob Hawke did? I think Bob Hawke really, uh, you know, it was really a, a kind of a key voice in Australian China policy. You know, here's this guy who had really shown his credentials as someone who loved the Chinese people through what he did at the Tiananmen Massacre. 
And then he went back to China and he said, you know, China's open for business now. We should be happy to go back and engage with them. He mentored a lot of key people within the Australian Labor Party. He's probably seen as the most popular former Australian prime minister. Uh, he was one of the founders of the Boal Forum for Asia, which is really the kind of influence forum for China to engage with with foreign elites. So I think he his main contribution was just lending his name to China, um, you know, coming out overseas and presenting China as, as a place that had moved beyond the Tiananmen Massacre. Uh, this guy who cried when the Tiananmen Massacre unfolded, coming out and saying, you know, let's move beyond that and let, let's engage. So this is really just the MSS was using him not to change his mind, but rather to amplify his emerging view that China was going to liberalize and they just kind of did things that would encourage him to push what was ultimately his own message. Yeah. You know, I think he, he genuinely wanted to be friends with China. You know, he, mm. he, that's why he took this offer of, of a, of a free trip to China in 93 and subsequently made, you know, over a hundred trips back and forth to the country. Um, and he felt that he was really being welcomed by the Chinese communist party as a friend. And the very fact that they were doing that, despite the Tiananmen massacre, told him uh, that they, they, they were moving past that. When, when, you know, in reality, you know, it, it never worked like that. Yeah. It's a really clever tactic to like, take somebody who was, a, who was openly critical and like give them wrong information to draw false conclusions on their own. Like, it's amazing to see how he went from being a China hawk to China's hawk. Yeah. I see what you did there. Thank you. Another really interesting thing about this is that in the same year that Bob Hawke was invited back to China uh, by this MSS front organization for a meeting with Jiang Zemin himself, uh, Jiang Zemin was giving a secret speech to the Ministry of State Security where he talked a very different line. You know, in this speech, he talks about how Western countries have never for a moment stop trying to split us, trying to westernize us. They don't want to see us rise. And then we can't pursue economic development if it comes at the cost of the Chinese Communist Party's control over this territory that we've won out, you know, that countless martyrs, in his words, have, have carved out for us. So this is just a totally different image, I think, to the kind of friendly pro-Western uh, face that Jiang Zemin was, was showing Bob Hawke and that he showed the rest of the world. Which is interesting because in a lot of the uh, commentary you see these days that uh, sort of the longer telegram, the idea that the problem with the Chinese Communist Party is Xi Jinping. And these these people, these China analysts who like look back fondly at Jiang Zemin that, those days, like they, oh, he they gave, aren't hearing he them. He gave so much access. I actually remember a AP article that from a couple of weeks ago that was talking about how, you know, a lot of um, – reporters or, you know, uh, analysts look back fondly on days with uh, Jiang Zemin and Zhu Rongji because of like, you know, Jiang would just talk about whatever, you know, off the cuff with reporters. Totally off the yeah. cuff. And, and Jiang Zemin also spoke English, so he made an effort to, it wasn't necessarily great English, but it seemed like he was making an effort to engage with the West, right? So naive. <laughs> I think I think um, 
you know, there, there, there are real differences between like Jiang Zemin and Hu Jintao, but fundamentally, I think they're, they're, they're you know, far greater the consistencies in the sort of shared belief in the sanctity of the Chinese Communist Party and its role. And also, I think they probably all shared this idea that that was fundamentally incompatible with the US's vision for the world and with this idea of, you know, liberal world order. China hasn't really hidden, I think, its intent to to challenge that. Um, you know, it's been quieter about it, but I think fundamentally, you know, you had Jiang Zemin talking about these issues in the 90s, and I think their, their mind was really set on this path after the Tiananmen Massacre, after the collapse of the Soviet Union. They saw that if they wanted to continue rising, if they wanted to continue developing, but keep Communist Party rule over China, uh, then they had to run things differently, that they couldn't just integrate into a US-led world order. Uh, but, you know, obviously China just wasn't in a position to do that and come out publicly saying that in the 1990s. But Xi Jinping and, and, and Hu Jintao, to some extent, felt that the time uh, has arrived. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's interesting that they knew... Like they knew what to say to the Westerners. Like, yeah, we, yeah, we're gonna d- democratize any day now. Just and also you're so smart. W- and also, would you like to make money in China? Yes. I feel like that that colors uh, everyone's view. Is like in an era under Jiang Zemin or Hu Jintao, when it was like the opportunities to make money seemed so much more accessible than today. It's like, of course, there's lots about China to love, right? And like, who cares what Jiang Zemin is doing to Falun Gong or what Hu Jintao is doing to Tibetans or whatever? Like, like China's trying to fix those problems. That's right. It's not even an exaggeration. <laughs> yeah. That's right. I think, um, you know, they, they, they did a really good job of, of selling this line. And, and to me, that really speaks to a kind of shared vision in the Chinese Communist Party that is probably more of a consensus view than you have in most Western countries for where the country is going and, and what objectives they're trying to achieve in the long term. And I think this meant that you know, even though you had voices inside the Chinese Communist Party, and you still do, who want a more peaceful relationship with the US, who don't want to confront and compete with the United States, who probably want more economic reform and some slight liberalization, I think they're, they're basically all in agreement that, you know, they want to strengthen the Chinese Communist Party, that they want to move towards, uh, you know, a more powerful Chinese Communist Party, and that this is somehow really not compatible with the way that the US sees the world. Uh, but, you know, let's just keep quiet about that until we can't avoid it. I mean, we can't ignore it. Right. I mean, everybody wants peace. Well, almost everybody wants peace. But the thing is, People want peace, but on their own terms. So when China says they want peace, when the Communist Party says it, like they do want peace because they want everyone to peacefully surrender and capitulate to whatever they want. They want to have a peaceful unification with Taiwan by not having to send in the troops. They just want Taiwan to, you know, agree on, you know, to become part of the PRC on the PRC's terms, right? But when America wants peace, you know, we want to have peace, but we also want to have it on our terms, albeit, you know, without 
the same kind of persecution that happens in China. So I think then uh, I had a really good point here and I was getting to it. Uh, and then I lost the thread of that. So maybe you could follow up, Alex. Well, I think this. I think this just speaks to, you know, the the long term importance of of influence operations to the Chinese Communist Party. You know, this isn't something that they sort of just came up with in the aftermath of the Tiananmen massacre. This is something that goes back well before the MSS even existed. You know, it was founded in 1983. But when did China start doing? When did the Chinese Communist Party start doing United Front work? That goes back to 1922. The year after it was founded by by the the Soviet Comintern, so this is a tradition that you know predates military work, uh, predates foreign affairs work, uh, even predates technically intelligence work inside the Chinese Communist Party, and that's just influence operations. So they might you know there, there are periods where they haven't been very good at it, but I think it's it's such a feature of Chinese internal politics, this sort of backroom dealing, this this intrigue, this scheming. Uh, and and it, it's quite natural for them, I think, for Chinese political leaders to play that out internationally as well, and to emphasize that. And that's that's exactly what we're seeing Xi Jinping do, you know, promoting the head of the United Front Work Department, elevating the importance of its work, uh, and we're just going to see more and more of these MSS influence operations that are that are increasingly professional. And and what I think is so dangerous about this is. Essentially, what the Communist Party is able to do is to get third party third parties to essentially become promoters of whatever message that they've been fed by the Chinese Communist Party. It's like it's like the Chinese Communist Party is a virus and it's exporting this virus around the world. I'm thinking specifically of the case of Goldman Sachs executive John Thornton, who was basically able to trick the Trump administration and how to approach China. Thornton's a fascinating case. And I think, you know, quite similar to Bob Hawke in many ways, that this is someone who, who, who's been wanting, who wanted to carve out a place for himself in the world after leaving Goldman Sachs in, in 2003 or so. And what he did was he signed up as a professor at Tsinghua University. I think the first foreign professor there since Bertrand Russell in the 1920s, um, and he was running an executive sort of leadership program uh, for the future leaders of the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, but a lot of his access inside China, as I found, uh, was through people like Wang Qishan, but also through this MSS-run front organization called China Reform Forum, which really specialized in pushing this idea that China was reforming, that it was liberalizing, that it was becoming more democratic and that the U.S. needed to welcome China and its rise onto the international world and, and not view it as a threat. And he was named as a foreign advisor to China Reform Forum. Uh, he would go for meetings with its staff, not realizing that these were quite literally the same undercover MSS officers who were handling you know, clandestine assets inside the United States. Uh, and I think you can see the impact of that in some of the things that he said publicly. You know, he really fits this mold of someone who uh, feels like they've been given special insight into China's direction. So he came out in 2008 with an article for Foreign Affairs magazine writing about how China was moving towards a democracy, you know, pointing to these, these grassroots village elections and how his sources at the top of the Chinese Communist Party were really talking about more democracy, democracy within the party, but eventually 
you know, more actual elections uh, within China. And this is something that, that, you know, really wasn't backed up by, you know, actual political analysis and scholarly work of China at the time. But he'd been sold this, it seems, by his contacts inside the Chinese Communist Party. And then what happened in the Trump administration, uh, you know, in the Obama years, he supposedly wanted to become ambassador to China. But in the Trump administration, he kind of quite surprisingly rekindled this friendship with, of all people, Steve Bannon, who he'd worked with at Goldman Sachs back in the day and um, tried to position himself as a backdoor messenger between the White House and Chinese leaders. You know, there are some things that they just didn't want to go through the State Department for or through the embassy for because they were sensitive and they thought they might leak. So going through Thornton was seen as a, as a better channel for these activities. Uh, but I talked to people who were working inside the White House at the time who, who claimed that Thornton was really trying to put his own agenda on this to, to use his position as a backdoor messenger to help, help kind of position uh, more sympathetic voices as leads on China policy within the White House, you know, people like Jared Kushner. Um, and, 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 you know, this didn't work out in the end, thankfully. Uh, they got Steve Lighthizer, Robert Lighthizer, sorry, who was a tough negotiator uh, with China. But the fact that someone who uh, had a lot of access to undercover MSS officers who had, had had his opinions shaped by them, as this Foreign Affairs article, I think, indicates, uh, was able to play this role inside the White House. And then no one inside the White House was actually warned about his connections, about security around these kinds of activities, really speaks to the failure of Western governments to appreciate influence operations and, and really understand how to respond to them. Why, why, why is it that the, the West and America keeps making these mistakes? Why do they keep falling for it? I mean... I it's thinking, not like the CIA and FBI are incompetent. Well, well <laughs> huh. I was thinking also 2008 for John Thornton's article to come out is like the year of the Beijing Olympics, right? Ah. So it was like a good year to try to convince people that China's opening up and it's going to democratize so that you can... Gosh, Shelley, your analysis is so clear-sighted. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I completely agree with you, Shelley. <laughs> <laughs> Alex, please save me. <laughs> yeah, I think... Um, <clears throat> You know, just for a long time, people didn't study influence work by the Chinese Communist Party. When I first started getting an interest in United Front work as, as a university student, when I when I last met you, there was there was only a tiny amount of scholarly literature on the topic, and I think it's come a long way since then. Um, but talking to people who had worked inside the intelligence community, who were there when you know, the PLA was was illegally funding, funneling money to the Bill Clinton campaign in, in 96, um, who were there in, in the early Bush years and so on, who were there when China Reform Forum was running these influence operations. They all seemed to share a frustration that these activities hadn't been taken seriously, that, you know, China might have kind of been clumsy with influence operations in the 90s, but they clearly improved. And even the stuff they did in the 90s should have should have been pretty alarming um, that you know I think people just had this almost racist assumption that China's inherently bad at these activities that their intelligence agencies are, are incompetent and that we're we're not susceptible to influence I mean just think about it they were funneling money to the Clintons and who pushed for China to enter 
know, push for free trade with China was Bill Clinton, the, the, the oh, poster well, I mean, boy of globalism. Well, Bill Clinton, if you, I mean, we're all a little bit young for this, but Bill Clinton ran for president criticizing George Bush's China policy mm-hmm. by saying he was, you know, backing the butchers of Beijing. Yeah, something like that, helping the dictators and that like Clinton would make sure that human rights and, you know, trade were, you know, tied. Part of the conversation. Uh, yeah. That's a really good point, Shelley. Uh, but then what did he do when he was in office? He did the opposite thing. Yes. Yeah. And I think China realized, you know, James Mann in his book, The China Fantasy, really had great analysis, I think, of Clinton China policy and just how whenever there was kind of tension between the US and China and, and Congress and China, the presidency would basically step in to veto that and roll over it with policies that were, you know, viewed by the presidency as in long term strategic uh, interest of the United States. Um, but you know, I just think the fact that China was running these activities in the 90s, uh, you know, should have sparked some some more introspection and reflection uh, on on how we were engaging with it and, and what these activities actually showed about China's intentions. But it goes back to this, this point that I think generally intelligence activity isn't viewed as something with real political or strategic significance. But when you have intelligence agencies brokering access between foreigners and Chinese leaders, that shows that Chinese leaders are to some extent briefed into and complicit in these activities uh, in a way that that should cause us to take them more seriously. One thing about uh, John Thornton is like, he probably thought that he was given a professorship at Tsinghua University because he was so qualified. I mean, after all, he was a big executive. He understood how America worked, how leadership worked. So of course, he gets that position because he's qualified. He gets his position in the the China reform forum, I'm saying that wrong, because he's qualified, right? I mean, isn't that what we all want to believe about ourselves? Yeah, I think it's, you know, it's it's quite flattering as well to be almost unofficially anointed by China as someone who they trust to be a go uh, a go-between with the United States, someone who who they want to be a kind of China whisperer back in DC. Um, and, and none of this, you know, involves actually going up to people, handing them cash and saying, you know, now you work for the MSS, because that's totally unnecessary in these kinds of activities when you're you're encouraging existing views, you're you're giving them other kinds of benefits, and you don't need to exactly control what they're doing. You probably wouldn't be able to to give them specific tasking, but just shaping them, putting them in the right position is a really effective way, I think, of building influence. And one thing that strikes me about a lot of the things that you're saying is that none of this is really technically illegal, right? I mean, giving John Thornton an honorary position at the China Reform Forum, it's not something that would necessarily be like, oh, well, you know, you're going to get in trouble with the FBI for that or anything like that. So is that another reason that this is hard for, you know, liberal democracies to track this kind of information? Yeah, I mean, it's not illegal and it might not have, you know, it might have turned out to be a, a good thing if if not for the fact that China actually wasn't being upfront about its intentions and was moving not in a democratic direction. Um, but certainly within intelligence agencies at the time, if you're like an FBI officer, and you want to build your career, you're not going to get that by going after these things that you can't prosecute. 
you know, you you're going to get promotions and, and medals for catching people stealing secrets, catching people stealing uh, defense information, for stealing uh, you know economic uh, espionage operations, that sort of thing. But going after political figures is something that is you know people want to avoid if if possible. It's just messy, and you're not going to able be able to get an easy prosecution. And there just haven't been many prosecutions of these activities. So it's it's a really bad career move to focus on countering influence operations. I mean, it's it's brilliant when you think about it. Like instead of like sending a Chinese spy into some corporation to steal, you know, some IP, you just, you know, subtly influence politicians and whatnot to then get the companies to just come to you and give you their IP. Yeah, I mean, you know, a lot of it has has I think been about just shaping that broader environment environment of how China's discussed who who is an authority on China, uh, you know, without without necessarily telling them exactly what to say, but picking the people who the, who you want uh, as as authorities on China and and backing them up essentially, giving them access. So when I was identifying these MSS officers, these people working at China Reform Forum and other front organizations, I would look at their names on, on Google Books and find them thanked in the acknowledgements of a lot of scholarly works about China and, and think tank reports because they were being interviewed as, as, as sources on China. Uh, they were being extensively quoted in U.S. embassy cables that have been released through WikiLeaks. Uh, and they were going and saying things like, you know, a, a little bit of chicken feed. So, you know, here's the actual date when the National People's Congress is next going to meet. That's a really nice thing to be able to cable back as a US diplomat in Beijing, but it's it's, it's ultimately of real, really no value. And then after kind of establishing their credibility with this sort of chicken feed going and saying, oh yeah, by the way, you know, me and my friends inside the Chinese Communist Party believe that gradual democratic reform is inevitable and that you know, our real enemy are the hard left within the Chinese Communist Party who want to see confrontation with China. And, you know, harder US policies towards China will only empower these hawks within the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, but also, you know, our main enemy is also uh, Taiwan. And we need to suppress Taiwan independence forces because that's going to provoke the hardliners within the Chinese Communist Party. Yeah. And then, you know, remarkably, when WikiLeaks cables were released, none of these undercover MSS officers seem to have been punished for saying these things that that contradicted the party line. Hmm. Almost as if they were saying exactly what the party wanted. Well, so you're saying that the that the Chinese Communist Party is two-faced? It's got three faces. What's the third face? I'm just saying it's, it's they're so, so deceitful. They don't have just two faces. They're just really afraid of losing face. That's right. That's why they have that extra. Collecting faces. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Okay. So so go ahead, Alex. This this is part of why I find discussions about factions in China so so interesting and 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 challenging because in China Reform Forum you had this group of MSS officers successfully presenting themselves to the West as leading figures in a reformist faction of the Chinese Communist Party that was essentially pro-US engagement and pro-reform, pro-liberalization uh, over the long term. 
And, and that meant that almost made them invulnerable in a sense, because when people in the party came out saying things that were really anti-US, it actually strengthened the standing of these undercover MSS officers by being like, oh, you know, now we really need to back these people because they're our actual friends inside the Chinese Communist Party. And you can see this in, for example, uh, Robert Zulick's 2005 speech, uh, you know, as a senior State Department official, where he announced and and articulated the US policy of welcoming China's, uh, you know, rise in the world and encouraging it to become a responsible stakeholder. He actually opened that talk by saying, I've just come back from Beijing and had the pleasure of spending, you know, several hours talking to people at China Reform Forum and then talking about how this sort of engagement with China uh, will will encourage China to become a more democratic and, and liberal place. So these people really were seen as the actual reformists within the Chinese Communist Party when they were undercover MSS officers. So, I, I so got- basically they're playing good cop, bad cop with us, and we're totally falling for it. Yeah, I, I think that was that was how these operations were run. You know, it doesn't mean that they're intimately coordinating with the bad cop. You don't need to have that sort of coordination for this to be successful. There's a there's a symphony of hardline, soft, you know, moderate voices within the Chinese Communist Party. And I think it's more about, you know, being able to shape the direction of that symphony, being able to play a part in the more, you know, reformist seeming side of that. But you know, I think one of the criticisms of, of the kind of stuff that, that I'm arguing is that oh, China couldn't organize a conspiracy like this. What you're saying is that you know, everyone has been briefed into this, that they're all part of it, but it just doesn't actually need to work that way. Um, you know, the MSS was strengthened by the fact that there were people coming out and saying things contradicting them. You know, just It gave them better access. It made them seem like more important uh, partners for engagement. Well, do you think this this messaging is still effective? I mean, 2008 was already way too late to be saying China's going to become a democracy under the Chinese Communist Party. But especially at this point, like, can anyone really believe, like, if if their, you know, Chinese contacts are being like, you know, we really are trying to become a democracy? Like, it's just so transparent at this point that that is not happening. I think it's a lot. Or, yeah. It's, well, I was going to say, actually, that's the, that's the whole anti-Xi thing, really. Like, oh, yeah, just take care of Xi. There's so many people in the party who, you know, would make it, would reform, but Xi Jinping is the problem. Yeah, I I don't think we're going to go back to people believing China's about to become a democracy, but there are still ways to kind of tweak and manipulate the debate. You know, you you would have seen all of the the supposed, you know, sources and and articles in the lead up to the 20th Party Congress claiming that Li Keqiang is going to seize power. And that Xi Jinping is going to come out of this with his, with his his grip on power really limited, and balanced by reformists and and sort of these these pro Deng Xiaoping elders within the Chinese Communist Party. And of course, like none of that has happened. We we saw the exact opposite of that. And I don't know whether the MSS had a hand in that or whether that was deliberate. But I think it's an example of how these these narratives of a reformist faction in the Chinese Communist Party of of a part that we can actually deal with uh, still has a lot of sway. And there's still this idea that if, we, if we're if we nicer to China, if we don't treat China like an enemy, it's not going to become an enemy. When you know, there's so much evidence showing that, you know, maybe enemy is the wrong word, but that China has seen itself essentially 
as struggling against the West since the 1990s in, 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 in various forms, and that now is the time to actually, you know, drop the facade. It, it is interesting how a lot of the things are framed in that way, even in Antony Blinken's State Department speech where he talked about, like, he, it was like he had to go out of the way to refute the idea that America wanted a Cold War and all these things, that it was like he was trying to somehow counter Chinese Communist Party propaganda about those things. But it, it doesn't really matter what he said about it. They're, they've already got their beliefs about it. But it's like we think that if we just don't go there, um, if we just are very clear that that's not what we want, then like they'll eventually believe us. You know, we already tried um, softer policies towards China that were meant to convince China that we had good intentions, that we were genuinely welcoming its rise. That was essentially how China policy was was set, you know, right up until the mid-2010s, if not even later. And, and you know, it didn't work. So it's certainly not going to work now when the government is actually... Uh, you know, enacting tougher policies on China, you know, trying to destroy or hold back China's semiconductor industry, for example. Uh, there's there's no way, I think, to to convince China that um, that that you know we welcome its rise and for that to actually cause the Chinese Communist Party to to change its policies to become more open and liberal. It's it's just not an option, in my belief. Do you think that the the China peace, China's peaceful rise thing was. Do you think it was so successful for so long because of the like that idea because of the MSS? So the the actual origin story of peaceful rise is the MSS essentially. So in in about 1994, you had a new organization set up called China Reform Forum, this think tank. Uh, that was promoting economic reform in China. You know, its membership were mostly economists. Uh, but what people didn't realize was that it was actually run and founded by the MSS as a platform for covert operations, and its staff were MSS officers. And then somewhere around the 2000s, I think this group really changed. It kind of became more ambitious. It became attached to the Central Party School, which is really quite unique. You know, this top training institution for Chinese leaders that I think at the time was presided over by Hu Jintao himself and was later presided over by, uh, by Xi Jinping. So to have an MSS group attached to the Central Party School, I think really signals kind of high-level political backing for its activities. And uh, they, they signed on Zheng Bijian, a top sort of retired party official as the figurehead of this group, but surrounded by MSS officers. And it was Zheng Bijian and China Reform Forum that actually first articulated the theory of China's peaceful rise uh, at, at a 2003 Boao Forum speech, and then subsequently went to the US, went to Europe, uh, went to Japan, promoting this idea. And for a brief period, it was repeated by Hu Jintao and Wen Jiabao. You know, top Chinese leaders adopted this language of China's peaceful rise. Uh, it was then kind of changed to peaceful development because people within the party thought that peaceful rise was, was kind of a provocative framing that, that might scare people in the West when it was designed to push back against this idea of China as a threat. But I think the kind of meme, you know, the, 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 the concept of China's peaceful rise has really stuck in people's heads and it's often used as, as a way to characterize 
this broader idea of where China was going, even if it, if the term itself had been dropped out of Chinese official language. Um, and, and the very origin of that goes to the MSS, the formulation of it, and then the subsequent promotion of that uh, is really all back to this MSS Bureau, the 12th Bureau. That's really incredible. I, I, I'm curious, what's the what's been the initial response to your book? I mean, like, are some of these people who thanked all these MSS agents being like, "Oh, wow, thank you for exposing that. I ma- I really made a mistake." Uh, not really, to be honest. Um, I mean, I had a couple of really great interactions with scholars who kind of realized they were dealing with MSS officers and were happy to talk about it and talked about how, you know, they'd been the targets of honeypot attempts and attempted extortion by these same MSS officers who were talking about peaceful rise. Um, But a lot of other scholars, I think, seem to have genuinely believed that they were dealing with actual reformists inside the Communist Party or even inside the MSS who wanted to help them build networks with uh, democratic voices inside China. Uh, And it was a different period of engagement when the risks of this weren't understood and you know it's it's an uncomfortable thing for people to to have to reckon with the possibility that that they were manipulated or that their friends in china uh, might not have been totally honest with them um but you know i think there's i think i think we're at a time when there's more appreciation that actually we did get china wrong and that we should be reevaluating these past activities so give us a good honeypot story well, the, the best one is this guy called Barry, who I write about in the book. I mean, maybe I'll give two if, if you don't mind. So the, the classic oh, please. one is... Yes. <laughs> please, Shelley, leave the room. <laughs> the classic one is uh, Bernard Boussicot, this French diplomat in China in the 1960s. Of course, who, the French would. Yeah, exactly. Uh, totally sexually inexperienced. I think it was his first diplomatic posting. And he was at a function and he fell in love with this... Peking opera actress, who was actually a man, but specialized in female opera roles, and convinced Bernard that uh, he was actually a woman who had to pretend to be a man. And, 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 and Bernard, you know, genuinely built a relationship with, with this actress, Shupei Po. Um, and at some point, the Chinese intelligence agencies recognized what was happening used it to recruit Bernard as an agent, got him to pass classified information to them. And then they, they went so far as to convince Bernard that he'd fathered a child uh, with this actress uh, and gave him uh, a little Uyghur baby uh, that, that they claimed was his. How did they do that? I'm, I'm, I'm wondering there's certain mechanics that... Yeah. So, so the, I, yeah, she, she was, I, a, she was a, a man pretending to be a woman. Yeah pretending to be a man pretending to be a woman i think there's something like that one i think um this is where the sexually inexperienced part of it comes into play yeah which is surprising because he was french (laughs) yeah well you know they know who to target i guess and um uh yeah he was he was so sexually inexperienced that you know he I won't go into the actual mechanics of it, but you can you can look up <laughs> some of the, the 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 intrigue behind it. But you know, he was wow. so sexually inexperienced that he fell for this, and and there's quite a sensational kind of court case that played out. There's a play based on it, and there's also a, a, a movie that you can watch uh, called um, I think Madam Butterfly. 
It's M Butterfly. M Butterfly. It's, it's a it's pun Monsieur, on yeah. Oh, yeah. It's Monsieur Butterfly, but M Butterfly. I, I had to read that in college, actually. Really? This is all coming back to me. Oh, wow. Yeah. So it's... Okay, yeah. so... Bernard, so, not a Giga Chad. <laughs> uh, give, us an, give us one more honeypot. Yeah, you promised us two. That's right. So, so that was the old school, you know, sensational, totally crazy honeypot story. But the one that, that I found through research in my book was um, talking to a scholar who I realized had been dealing with these undercover China Reform Forum MSS officers. And he was quite young at the time. Um, he had had some, you know, government experience, but was a scholar and was 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 engaging with China Reform Forum, was getting invited to China to attend conferences, and over a couple of years really built up a close relationship with some of these undercover MSS officers. And they would take him out for drinks, they would, you know, bring him over, take him to banquets. And one time they invited him over for a conference. And then when he got there, there was no conference. And they just, these MSS guys are like, oh, we'll, we'll just take you around anyway. Um, so they took him to a fashion show of as he described it, scantily clad Uyghur women. And then as the show was going on, you know, one of these MSS guys leaned over and was like, oh, it's pretty good, right? You know, would you like to go upstairs with them? And, you know, he turned it down. But then the next step in in the kind of junket was um, they took him to a spa and he called it like a like a like an underground water grotto spa where you have these like rock formations and a heated pool and you can kind of hide in the rocks. And so he was just chilling there with these undercover MSS officers. And at one point a guy walks through who, who he interpreted as their boss. Like they all waved at him. He was introduced to this guy and, and he, the, the MSS boss was like, yeah, you know, have, have a good time. Enjoy your stay at, at our sauna. And then after the spa, uh, they all got massages and then, you know, the woman basically offered him something more than a massage as he was on the table, which he turned down. Like um, a sandwich. A kind of sandwich, yeah. And uh, <laughs> oh, You one-upped me. And, well done. Uh, he, he turned that down, but uh, they tried all sorts of things. So he'd go to different provinces in China and he'd have different parts of the MSS r- running the same, you know, operations against him. At one point, he met with these China Reform Forum MSS guys, and they went to hand him a reimbursement for all his travel expenses. And they did it in a deliberately dodgy way, apparently, where they met in a cafe sitting by the window so people from the street could see. So it's probably someone taking photos. Uh, and this MSS guy got an envelope full of cash and kind of tried to hand it to him under the table. You know, not just, oh, here, this is your reimbursement. This is a legitimate exchange of cash, but trying to make it look like something dodgy so that they could probably use that against him at the later, at a later stage. And at the same time, they would, you know, try to give him this spiel that China was becoming democratic that, uh, and at the same time, you know, it'd be really good if you, if you went back and, and, and got a job in the U S government and that we could you know, keep talking to you after that. But at no point, you know, in these years of friendship with him, did they ever actually drop cover and say, where MSS officers, they really believed in this pretense of being scholars who, you know, will invite you over for conferences, but also like having a good time. So uh, I want to get your take on something that happened this past week. Uh, in Hong Kong, a bunch of 
bankers from around the world, including the head of uh, UBS, uh, had this financial forum. And they were very excited about this prospect of uh, China opening back up after COVID and the idea that, you know, it's, it's time to go back to investing in China. Uh, you know, after reading your book, I kind of have a little different take on this sort of thing. Uh, but wh what do you think is going on there? I mean, you know, people who are financially invested in China have so many incentives to be, in a way, optimistic about the country and to, to sell its story to the rest of the world. And, and the Chinese Communist Party recognizes that. I mean, there are a lot of people in the investment community, a lot of economists who have changed their minds or who, who recognize that you know, the, the potential benefits of investment and, and trade with China from, from years past are sort of not quite there anymore and come with a lot more risks of, of disruption, of, of sanctions from the US government, for example. Uh, but this is, this is just an example, I think, to me of how China still has a lot of interest groups and communities where it can run these influence efforts that are, you know, are more inclined to go overseas and, and push China's agenda. And, you know, while people in Congress, I think, are largely uh, waking up and recognize where China is now, you still have a lot of people in that community. You still have a lot of, uh, you know, pro-CCP Chinese, pro-CCP Chinese community figures You'll still have a lot of people in local governments and a lot of you know, countries like in Africa and Southeast Asia and the Pacific Islands that are still sold on, on, on China's message, essentially, are still you know, trying to accrue these sorts of benefits from China. Uh, and China's still got a lot of room to push influence in those areas. Well, I think before we wrap up for the day, uh, it might be worth giving just a little more of a spotlight on, on the 12th Bureau, since that was such a focus of the book, like what what are they versus the other bureaus of the MSS? Uh, yeah, just kind of like how yeah. it, how it all operates. It, it's really, I think, the most fascinating part of the MSS. It, it's its name is something like the Social Liaison Bureau or Social Investigation Bureau, and I think that that naming really kind of points to the way that it focuses on social relationships, on building these cultural front organizations to engage with people, uh, setting up scholarly ventures, uh, pretending to be journalists and, and media organizations and entrepreneurs. So kind of trying to use social networks in China as a tool for intelligence and influence operations. Uh, and a lot of people kind of view it as an elite part of the MSS that uh, gets some of the best talent and historically has run some of the most effective and ambitious, but I think also quite cautious and patient operations around the world. So there's the case of Katrina Leung, which is another kind of honeypot story. Uh, this FBI source who was actually working for the MSS and in the process seduced two of her FBI handlers, and she was handled by the 12th Bureau of the MSS. And it's the 12th Bureau that was behind China Reform Forum, this idea of China's peaceful rise. Um, and, and it's really just a fascinating part of the MSS to study. I think it's, it's something that seemed to really frustrate the former counterintelligence officers I interviewed, but it was great as a, as a scholar to actually look at what they were doing because there are so many interesting characters involved. You know, you had 
a whole bunch of poets, uh, musicians, uh, think tankers, foreign policy scholars actually joined the 12th Bureau as MSS officers. You know, they were recruiting a really kind of eclectic mix of people because of this focus on social exchanges, cultural exchanges, and using that as a weapon for covert operations. Yeah, it's amazing the, the different types of people that they got to get involved. I in mean, this. if you're a poet, how else are you going to make money? I mean, you know it. <laughs> yeah, I think there are, there are going to be a lot of people in the MSS who are great poets, who are great calligraphers, who who are great, you know, readers of of classical Chinese literature, um, and 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 those people seem to really appear, especially in in the Twelfth Bureau, and you know, sort of to this point of like the weird and eclectic networks that they were building. Uh, I don't know if you ever heard the music of Richard Clayderman in China. Uh, uh, I've I've heard my mom loved this song, Ballad for Adeline or something, which is a Richard Clayderman song. Yeah, he's like one of the biggest, you know, musicians or artists in China. He's this this French pianist who basically writes like elevator music or plays elevator music really sappy, soft pop, romantic piano. I think in China they call him the Prince of Romantic Piano. And what I found was that his tours of China and his career in China was was built up by the MSS 12th Bureau. I don't know exactly why they were doing this. You know, I couldn't get in touch with, with Richard Clayderman, unfortunately. Um, but, you know, maybe it was just a way to send people to France to, uh, you know, an excuse to send officers on, on these trips abroad. But uh, it's a really creative and, and fun part of the MSS to study and also really, really dangerous and effective part. It's like you said, it's a symphony. You know, it's really beautiful. <laughs> Maybe they really liked his music. I mean, there's a, there's, a, there's a high tolerance for elevator music in China. Look at how much they love Kenny G. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Closing time, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, like, that's, I don't think that's the name of the song. No. <laughs> I think that's another song. Oh. <laughs> but you've also uh, got yeah. you know, Julio Iglesias, the, the Spanish singer, his his he was the first foreign singer, I think, to give like a live performance on CCTV. And again, it was organized by the MSS twelfth bureau. So really gosh. You know, maybe I mean you- it's kind of absurd. You know, maybe it was just a way of uh, kind of shoring up their cover and really living this this pretense of being a cultural organization, but it makes for for fun reading and a fun object of study. Now I'm kind of wondering if like the MSS is responsible for Kenny G's career. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, I mean, like it's just, it's just staggering the level of the communist party's influence operations and just like how smart they are about it. And it's, it's great that, you know, you've been able to expose so much of this in your book, uh, definitely recommend it to anyone watching. There's just, I mean, you know, you you, you sample just a bit of it. Uh, and yeah, this is an important message for people to understand. What do you think the West can do about this? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's, that's what really matters. Um, right now, it's just so poorly understood. A lot of people, I think, don't quite take these activities seriously enough. Uh, countries need to get laws to actually criminalize some of these activities, you know, to, you know, not to criminalize just like talking to an MSS officer, but to better go against the MSS officers and the people who are wittingly engaged in these activities. 
and 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 create the political backing to to go after this because you can't stop political influence operations if you're not willing to accept that essentially people on your side politically are probably going to get burnt by this. That's the process that Australia had to go through and that's what makes it such a difficult challenge in, in many countries when they're not willing to really go all the way and they might make some motions of, of wanting to deal with political influence but uh, aren't actually uh, seriously tackling the problem. So I think, you know, across the five eyes, you know, US, Canada, Australia, New Zealand and the UK, there's still a lot more to be done uh, by governments. Um, but a lot of it should also be public. You know, you can't fight influence work in the dark. It, it thrives behind closed doors when people can make deals that aren't being scrutinized by the public, when people don't have to come to terms with the fact that they're engaging with and getting access from MSS officers. So governments need to be making it public. But, you know, that's it's not something that, you know, only governments can do. You know, this book that I've written is entirely essentially based on open sources that I've read, you know, in Chinese and in English. I've spent a lot of time in libraries looking at Chinese business records and and that sort of thing. And this is something that people can keep doing and should keep doing to shine a light on influence activities, shine a light on these covert organizations. And through that, I think, impose costs on their activities on and also on kind of reckless engagement with them. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, and thank you for writing the book. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I really enjoyed it, and hope everyone listening enjoys the book too. Or gets terrified by it, one of those. <laughs> Why not both? It's a smorgasbord of emotion. <laughs> you can say I, you can put that on the back of your book, a smorgasbord <laughs> of emotions, Chris Chapel, China Uncensored. <laughs> yep, it'll be on the second edition. <laughs> excellent, excellent. You know, it's really amazing how these, you know, Chinese spies can, you know, pretend to be your friend for years and years without ever breaking. Like, how would you know that maybe one of the people closest to you might be your enemy? I mean, I'm not saying anything about you, Shelly, because I know you're my enemy. Okay. okay. And I think we're all pretty aware how you feel about Matt. <laughs> Uh, well, I mean, that's why the book's called Spies and Lies, right? Because the spies are actually lying to you. Ah, uh, yeah. So maybe I'm lying about how I feel about Matt. And do you actually like him? I don't know where the impression is that I don't like Matt came from. Uh, the comment section. Yeah, or the last 180 podcasts. <laughs> there might be some clues. <laughs> Oh, and I just want to say, Matt, at one point in this podcast, you had this very emotional, we all just want to be told we're qualified. And I just got to say, Matt, you are qualified to be my friend. Thanks, Chris. Is there anything you'd like to say to me? Nope. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for watching China Unscripted. <laughs> I'm Chris Chappell. I'm not an MSS spy. And I'm a very qualified Matt Ganesta. See you next time.